0: I think everyone reads a little bit differently. And I do find myself to be an emotional reader, but I'm also lightly skeptical. (laughs) So I do want books that have meat to them. I'm not someone who is really drawn to your traditional rom-com, even though I absolutely get the pleasure in that. That's not necessarily what I'm going for. I love books that sort of take you through the pain uh, of living in some way. Life is inherently as tragedy and as hardship. And I love books that take you to that, but also give you an opportunity to see a way out and to see hope in even dark places.
1: Hey there, welcome to Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. I'm Abigail Perry, the host of Match, and a certified developmental editor who has also worked as an editorial intern at a literary agency. I'm absolutely thrilled to bring you today's literary agent. This is a literary agent who caught my attention when I saw in Publishing Marketplace's Mickey Brammer's book, The Collected Regrets of Clover get a deal and was immediately drawn to that story and we are going to talk a lot about that story in today's interview in addition to the amazing insights that this literary agent has her name is michelle Brower, and she is a co-founder and literary agent at trellis literary management michelle has spent over 15 years as an agent her list spans the spectrum of literary and commercial fiction from thought-provoking story collections to page-turning thrillers, and she's primarily interested in work that focuses on storytelling and emotional connection. Michelle believes that the Beth's reading experience engages both the heart and the head, which she finds often in book club novels that have these commercial ideas with literary execution, literary fiction, literary suspense, genre fiction for a non-genre audience, and upmarket women's fiction. In nonfiction, Michelle is looking for a personal story that illuminates a greater subject and very selectively represents literary young adult fiction. In all of those areas, she is looking to support underrepresented voices. Michelle is honored to work with books that have received a variety of accolades, including New York Times bestsellers, National Book Award finalists, and Reva Jenna, Target, and Barnes & Noble book club selections. Her authors have received recognition from the Whiting Awards, The Ronald Happe Foundation, MacDowell, the Steinbeck Fellow Program, the Swanee Writers Conference, as well as many other organizations. Michelle received her master's degree in British and American Literature from New York University. And originally from New Jersey, she now lives in Seattle with her family. It is my great honor to bring you her today. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us here today. I am so excited to have you. You have such wonderful experience that you are bringing to the table with your clients and I'm just really excited to dig into your agenting career and how you like to work with agent states. thanks Abigail I'm so excited and it's so great to meet you so Michelle you have spent 15 years in agenting you have a lot of time that you have been able to really learn about this career and how it works and you also have worked at various agencies Throughout the trajectory of those 15 years, I would love to learn more about what your career path looks like and some of the lessons that you have acquired as you've journeyed to where you are today.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, I have th- what I think is a kind of funny start to my career in that I answered an ad on price list. Again, this was over 15 years ago, so maybe it was less creepy to do that then. But I was going to NYU, getting my master's in literature absolutely useless yet wonderful degree and was working at the law school in a work-study job. I I was somewhat familiar with publishing. I knew that agents existed. And I always kind of was keeping an eye out for a job in that space because I just thought if I could get paid to read, that's a perfect part-time job while I'm going to school. Saw an ad on Craigslist for an intern, a paid internship at a literary agency got that job. And then about three weeks in, I decided this is what I want to do. This is an actual career that lets you read books, which is what I do for fun. And you also get to talk to authors and be involved with the books very early on in the process before they are on a bookstore table or shelf. You are, are deeply and intimately involved with that. So I absolutely fell in love with that aspect of the job i have never been an editor. I've only been an agent, although I definitely did uh, think about going over to the editorial side for a little while. I'm so glad I stayed on the agenting side. And so I had a paid internship for that first job. That was a part-time job. I became a part-time assistant, I became a full-time assistant, and started taking on projects while at that first job. Then as I sort of through with my client list, grew and my experience grew. I moved to become an agent at different companies and have been an VP and a partner. And I'm so excited to have actually founded my own literary agency with my amazing partners, Stephanie Delman and Allison Hunter. So we are a woman owned agency. It's really exciting. Yes, I'm very like girl power in that respect. And, you know, we're really making something we're, we're proud of and find that having our own company really lets us support authors in a way that we necessarily hadn't been able to as agents at another company. So it's been a really, really great experience. It's a very straightforward trajectory for me. Although, uh, as you might know, there's nothing straightforward about agenting or publishing even, but it's been a, a really good path. And although I'm still happy to have my master's degree from NYU, it really <laughs> Was not uh, academia, was not in the parts movie.
1: Well, I hear you on that. I have a BS in film and, you know, just wanted to start out in film. Then I ended up going into publishing. You know, I was <laughs> like, I want to be where the stories are born. I get it. We publishing is like Mark film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. You talked about how you are now, you founded your company. So Trellis Literary Agency is now your founder and literary agent there. And you did it with these wonderful partners. I'm assuming throughout this trajectory of how you started to climb to this position of being able to found your own literary agency that you formed these relationships with Stephanie and Allison along the way. Were they at the same agencies that you worked with or did you connect with them in other various forms?
0: No, well, one of the great things, um, great if you are an extrovert like me about agenting is that it's a really social business. It's part of your job to get to know other players in the industry. And I first became friends with Allison Hunter. I very distinctly remember us meeting at a, a publishing drinks event and just absolutely hitting it off. And then Allison had introduced me to Stephanie. And so it's uh, a web of relationships that goes back, but we were all at different agencies. You know, Allison had been at Jingle and Nesbitt, and Stephanie had been at Sanford Greenberger. So we all had. Different experiences, and I think that was also part of the reason we wanted to come together to form something new. Is we had all kind of pull various pieces from our careers and different places we worked to see, okay, what these are the things that are good, and these are the things we
1: want to leave behind. That fascinates me because one of the things, then, it's up on your agency's website, so everyone can should go check out Trust Letter Agency. You should go check them out. And one of the reasons why you decided to create your own agency instead of continue to work in another one was because you have this vision of how you want to see publishing evolve and grow. I'd love to hear more specifically about what that vision is and how you were actively pursuing that change in publishing.
0: Yeah. So uh, one of the the big things for us, which has become really a big part of the conversation very recently is about junior staff and The ability to grow and grow happily inside of a job that can be incredibly demanding and often really poorly paid. I mean, just to be very frank, across the board, you know, publishing salaries are pretty low, particularly entry level and and just post entry level. And so we wanted to create a company where our junior staff were valued. And supported and promoted because I think we each had that experience in different ways, but also had run up against different walls during that process. And it was very important to us to create a company that was about connectivity and support. So there are no expectations, a trellis, that you have to be an assistant for X number of years before you can start taking on clients. We want to make sure that if you are new to the business, you have the the fundamentals in place and the mentorship in place so that you can do the job. But I feel like classic publishing has a lot of artificial ceilings and we wanted to take those away. And we also wanted to be very thoughtful about having our staff and our agents and all come from different backgrounds because publishing is particularly well-educated white women, and there is a lot of of different perspectives out there that are not served by having that one narrow portal. That's something that we've started with and that we want to really continue with. We are a new company, and so we will be growing and expanding over the years, and that's something we want to be really, really thoughtful of. And another piece of that, which I kind of touched upon, is the idea of community. We really want our agents and staff to feel like they're part of a community and get benefits from that. We pass on authors to each other. We recommend things to each other. We're always helping with submission lists, editor introductions. What's great is that, you know, Stephanie and Allison and I, we have a certain amount of experience and we know a certain set of people, but our our younger folks also know a set of people. And so we really try to cross-pollinate with that. We want to do that for our authors as well. One of the specific choices we made in forming the company is to really have a deep focus on fiction in particular. We do, do really great nonfiction as well. I'm going to be expanding more in that space too, but we really want to create a conversation between our authors so that they feel they are in a community together and we've seen just in, in our early days how wonderful it is to have authors cheering on other authors. It's been really heartening to see and that's
1: something we want to really, really continue with in the long run. I love everything that you're saying because this community and the cross pollination and helping one another. This is how we get better stories, great stories into the world and how we reach every demographic with those stories. That's really wonderful. It's especially interesting because you created Trellis in a pandemic. And yes, <laughs> within that, you know, the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic has had a lot of downs, but there were also positives that came out of it. And I think one of those is the ability for more people to get into publishing. Of course, it makes it more competitive in this way, but there's opportunity now because it's not all New York. And like you said, like salary is a big hurdle. It's a big reason why some people can't have the means to get into publishing because we can't afford to live in New York City, on a salary that sometimes are the salaries. And now we're having this opportunity to work remote and all those things. So I'm just really curious. So just like, What is your experience starting a company in a pandemic? Has it come with challenges that you think have made it more difficult? Or have there been a lot of pluses that have come with it? You know, it it
0: is really mixed. I mean, there have been so many challenges starting a company in a pandemic because we haven't been able to be physically together as much as we'd like. We've had events scheduled that we then had to cancel because Omicron or things that we were hoping were the pandemic was easing up have gotten more challenging. But at the same time, we are a decentralized, physically decentralized agency. We don't have a physical office yet, although that's something we're going to be thinking about in the coming years. Although I think much like everyone else, we have to try our best to kind of understand and predict what in-person work will look like again. But I I live in Seattle. Allison Hunter, one of the partners, is in Austin, Texas. Stephanie is in New York. All of our, our various agents are in various places. I think that flexibility is something that publishing has been really lacking. Important for several reasons. One, getting out of New York. You kind of get out of the sort of group think of this is, you know, these, my example for this is preschool admissions. So in very few places are preschool admissions as competitive and cutthroat as they are in New York. Yet there are sort of way too many books published about that subject because all of the people are in New York and this is familiar to them, whereas it may not actually travel very well, that sort of subject. But, you know, And the other thing that's incredibly important is that it is such a high barrier to entry. I think housing in New York has only gotten more expensive as time goes by. And even though I think publishing salaries recently, there has been work done to kind of get those up. It's really challenging to keep pace with the the cost of housing. It absolutely is. And this will, you know, at the very least being a little bit geographically just First is helping us get talent that we might not be able to get. Otherwise, it's still incredibly competitive. I think for our assistant position, we had over 200 resumes, come in, and many of them were extremely qualified. And, and we ended up having to select just one person for that job. But I do think that there is a, a little bit of a, the stranglehold of New York. The grip is loosening. A bit. And I do, I love New York. I lived there for many years. I miss it quite a bit often, but I also have a totally different quality of life by being able to live in a different city. So it's something that I I think is promising about the pandemic. The other silver lining of the pandemic is books have been doing extremely well. People are reading. And so our industry at large has been doing extremely well. So when you talk about you know, forming a company during a pandemic. There are lots of of downsides, but we are forming our company in a time when our industry is booming. That in itself has been very good.
1: There's so much hope for all of these writers that you're bringing in. You're having deals all the time. So tell us about some of those deals. What are some of the most yes that you've made?
0: Well, we can talk about the wonderful Mickey and who did come to me via my unsolicited queries, which is Kind of always my absolute favorite way because it's so random. You know, she had to think of me and I had to read it at a moment when I was ready to take on a new book. And, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It turns out we actually do know a person in common, Allison Warren, who was her roommate and someone I worked with. So I feel like it was meant to be in many ways, but I didn't know that when I when I first opened her email. She and I started working together earlier in the pandemic and... She had sent me her query for her novel. I loved the idea. And I really liked the sample chapters, but there was something that I felt like it needed to be written in first person. And at the time it was in third person. And so we talked and I was like, if you can write me a couple chapters in first person and they're like what I think they could be, then we can talk about working together. And so she was kind enough to do that. I mean, that's a huge change. I'm mostly not requesting that kind of drastic effort Someone I'm not signed with yet, but I just had this really good feeling that she could do it. And then if she did, it was really going to crack open the book and the concept was so great and she seemed so great. So that happened. And then we were really fortunate enough to sell her book at auction, which is the best. And again, another one of my favorite things. i um, also really fortunate to find a lot of translation homes for it as well. I think we have, uh, I want to say almost 16, something like that. yeah. And the book is going to be translated. We have the UK and Australia as well. So she had all English language, all the major English language territories. She's got an editor and a home there. So that's very exciting.
1: So exciting. That's great. And that's 2023, right? Coming out from St. Martin's. Yeah. It's a, the
0: yeah. Collected Regrets of Clover. And St. Martin's, and yeah, it's also really spoke to me because it's like a happy book about grieving. That was just such an odd kind of you know thing to think about, but the, because of the pandemic, and and even without the pandemic, I think we have a hard time thinking about death. And this is a book that particularly warm and entertaining spin on what do we do when we're at the end of our lives? And just to recap the idea of the book, it's about a death doula who lives a very prescribed kind of reclusive life. Although she is, her job is to go and help people when they die to make them feel better, to help the family, to really ease that. The life's greatest and last transition. But she meets uh, an older woman who sort of challenges her to start living herself. And so it's something that feels very wise and warm and fresh and deep. And so that was what really attracted me to it. It made me feel better for having read it. And in a time where it's very difficult to feel better, I felt that was a huge, huge thing. So very excited that pretty soon we get to share that. In, in Book Publishing World 2023 is soon.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, I have questions firing off in my brain. I do want to ask you about POV and I want to return to that. So yeah. if I don't remember, remind me of that. But what you're talking about right here really gets me into the idea of, you said it's about a happy way of grieving. Yeah, And I love books about grief. I think it's one of the things that I look to explore. I also am fascinated by the idea of a happy way of breathing. I want to talk about your manuscript wishlist. You like to look for those books that reach the heart and the head, those emotional yes. connections. Yes. And it sounds like this book in particular satisfied that desire. So could you please talk to us about your manuscript wish list and how you are specifically looking for these stories that connect those emotions.
0: Yeah, I think everyone reads a little bit differently. And I do find myself to be an emotional reader, but I'm also lightly skeptical. (laughs) So I do want books that have meat to them. I'm not someone who is really drawn to your traditional rom-com, even though I absolutely get the pleasure in that. That's not necessarily what I'm going for. I love books that sort of take you through the pain uh, of living in some way. Life is inherently has tragedy and has a uh, hardship. And I love books that take you to that, but also give you an opportunity to see a way out and to see hope in even dark places. And so particularly to go back to The Collective Regrets of Clover, you could read a book that mimics the experience of grief. But I think many of us are sort of dealing with that either through personal losses in these recent times or just the the immense sense of loss that is sort of cultural and global. I felt what I wanted and what was so particularly appealing about this book was that it did not mimic the experience of grieving, but it showed you... A way through grieving and really what it is about the beauty of life, you know, the beauty of living. I am always drawn to those books that do have some sort of emotional grasp on you. I want to shed one tear. I don't want to be bawling on the floor, unable to get up. I want to shed a few tears and think like, that's just so beautiful. That's something that really just illuminates our humanity. I think that all novels are about illuminating our humanity in different corners of that. So I think that is what I'm drawn to, and there's so many ways to get to that. I do like particularly inventive ways to get that, like an interesting concept, say that is the idea of a death duel, which is something I wasn't that familiar with before reading this book. So to get specifically, my wish list is so vague and broad right now. I think sometimes I'm incredibly specific, or I'm like, I want a book with magic. I actually would like a book with magic. I kind of would love a little bit of an element of magic, but I really do want stories that are for the heart and the head. Stories that make you think, stories that could be book club books, something that you want to discuss with your friends and something that you might even want to have an argument over. I love that. Let me see if I can get any more specific for you because I know that would be good. I also always love things that are a little scary. I will also say this, this is not very specific either, but I love elements of genre where it's not a straight genre book, but it takes a genre element and turns it into like sort of a a book for a more general reader.
1: That's something I always always draw. I was looking at your manuscript list and one of the things that you said were these book club books, but book club books that have a literary appeal to them. And it's really interesting because I feel like I've talked to a variety of literary agents and they tend to either be, I'm commercial or I'm literary. And you are a little bit in between, it sounds like. So can you explain to me more about what that would look like when you say, I want the book club book that has literary appeal to it? What does that actually mean? And why do you think these books are touching readers in such a way that Mm -hmm. they want to discuss them in book clubs? That's a great question because I feel
0: that I read very widely. So I read commercial fiction and I read literary fiction. And it sort of just depends on what I'm in the mood for, what I need from my reading at that moment in time. Uh, so I always consider it's a spectrum. You know, it's a spectrum to me about for commercial fiction, maybe story is the more important aspect. For literary fiction, maybe the words and the, and the craft is more important aspect. And then there's this wonderful middle where there's storytelling and craft all together. And to me, that's where I find myself most at home. And I also love to see, like, there's a lot of books that can be book club books, right? There is a huge span that can fit into that. You can have prize-winning novels and you can have best-selling novels and sometimes they're the same book and sometimes they're different books and they can... Fit well for book club. I do think having a strong concept and a strong story where things do happen in the book. Also having really well-built characters is another important aspect. too. Like real, real characters. The characters are absolutely real people who make conflicting decisions and are not always one particular way. I mean, what I love about people is that we always act against our interests and (laughs) do kind of odd things. And I love when that is a fully realized person on the page as well. To me, what makes a good book club book? It is something you want to discuss. It's either something a little bit timely or it's timeless in that it's something you grapple with now. I love, you know, elements of historical fiction because I think having something that happened in the past that is very truly turns out to be related to now is a great way to talk about contemporary issues and also to, again, have that relationship with the characters that is almost as if you know them in real life or that they feel very real to you. I also do love books that are, are more intellectual and, and specifically about like the craft of it and make you ask a different set of questions. But I feel like those are not necessarily always the book
1: club books. I think about a book that I loved. Well, I, I mean, I have many books that I love, but when I was thinking about those book club books that also have the literary appeal to them, I, I talked about this, I feel like a bazillion times in the podcast, but I love Jodi Pico's books. Yeah. And she has amazing prose, really interesting characters. And you talk about these books. Yeah, you know, so it's like some of my like, puts
0: them all in a very specific situation that you ask yourself, "What would I do if
1: I were in this situation?" I and think that's, that's what, a, yeah, yeah, like that's like that's a huge part of it, right? Because it she's so great at research that she really challenges the reader. By giving us the multiple perspectives in yeah. the sense of like, all right, this person sees it this way, but oh, this person sees it this way. I'm thinking about um, my favorite leaving time, small, break things, 19 minutes, like all of these ones that's like, wow, like really hard, sometimes very challenging topics to read about, but yes. you're forced to see different perspectives. And I think that's a big thing with characters, because you mentioned characters are essential to a story. I actually would argue that I think characters are the most important element mm-hmm. in the story if you have characters, they will tell you the story.
0: Right. You, right. If you have a story and no characters, it doesn't go anywhere. But if you have real characters, they will make story happen.
1: Yes. And that's, it seems like, oh, it can't be that difficult to make a great character, but it's actually very challenging, right? To make yeah. a really relatable, sympathetic character that has all these imperfections, but we want to see naked by the end that. Yeah and when you talk about specifically these book club books and these ones that have that emotional connection part in head i'm thinking from the perspective of a writer mm-hmm. often you might have a really strong beginning but then you really start to lose it mm-hmm. in the middle and with these stories that are having these strong emotional appeals to them you do need the character to be the first thing that you're drawn to but if you don't have plot in some way that's challenging them you start to lose that momentum and agency in the middle of the story And I'm wondering, has that been something that you usually find if you're reading manuscripts? Do you find that you might be really attached in the beginning, but it starts to lose that momentum in the middle? And if so, do you have any recommendations for writers on how to keep that momentum going?
0: well, the middles are hard, right? No one's like, oh, I'm very excited to write the middle of my story. It's the beginning and the end. Like I know what happens in the beginning and I might know what happens in the end, but like, how do we get there? I do think that... One it is a common kind of trap to fall into as a beginning writer or or just sort of finding your way as a writer, finding your voice is to not have anything happen. I always think and it's very basic, but I break down books into the premise, the conflict, and then the path to resolution. So the premise is where you start. The premise is like what's this interesting place, time, idea, this is and characters like. They're all there at the beginning of the story. That's your premise. But then something has to happen to set that world that you've created off of its axis and send it spinning. Then the pleasure of reading them and then finding what happens when something like that crashes into this stable situation. So, like in the case of Mickey's book, as we've talked about it, the main character, Clover, is happy being very reclusive and not doing much, or she thinks she is anyway. And then this woman comes into her life, which sort of sends her crashing up for access and and makes, she has to change because her world has changed. And so I think that it's really important to think about what that is and what the consequences of that are narratively. So you can't just have something happen and then nothing changes. Like there's a difference between things happening and characters growing and changing in the world that they're in growing and changing. You really have to pay attention to when I do this, what is the result? What would happen? What would change about this? And I think that when you're kind of stuck in that thorny middle place, which is a really common thing to say, okay, this has come into my character's world. What are the cascading effects of that?
1: Yes, that's really interesting and important. To not only story development, but scene development. It sounds like because you're going to have this big picture. This is what the big idea of the story is the woman coming into the main character's life in the collective regrets of Clover, throwing her off, and she's now going to have to change. All stories have to be about change, essentials. Scenes have to be about change too, as well, right? So Mm -hmm. when you're going through this idea of big picture to small picture on the scene level versus the story, And making sure that it sounds like there's this ripple effect of change, maybe in the middle, it sounds like if there starts to be a moment where the energy or the interest starts to plateau, these characters aren't changing significantly. They're changing in a way that seems repetitive or it's not any type of new change. Could that be what's going on? I love that you said repetitive because I
0: also think that that's sort of a common first time writer or just again, newer emerging writer issue is that you had to learn to tr- how much you trust your reader. So you want to make sure your ideas are getting across. But if you repeat them too much or at all, it's actually you are not trusting your reader enough and it takes away the pleasure that they get about connecting the dots themselves. And so I think there is an urge to be like, no, I really want the reader to know that she's becoming more independent. And so... Sometimes you're just hitting that same note too many times, as opposed to saying she's become more independent. And then what does that open up for her as character? So I think that that's something to be aware of as well, is, is trusting your reader to make some big leaps themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you find that you're working with clients and maybe you get a draft and this is happening, do you have any strategies or recommendations for how writers can start to think outside of the the scene that they're trapped in?
0: I think you have to cut You start cutting your repetitions and then you look at what, once that's gone, what is next for your character? I think cutting it is like my favorite kind of editing in some ways because it is about creating new gaps that you can build new bridges over. I love letting things go and I love talking authors into letting things go. Because once you do, there's less clutter in the manuscript and you can kind of see like, okay, well, if I don't have that, you know, what is the next obvious step for her? What is the less obvious next step? Another thing I always talk about too is, as I mentioned briefly before, is that human beings are incredibly complex and not straightforward at all. And so when we change, we resist that change and... (laughs) Where we say we're going to be X Y Z, but in reality we don't do that. That interior conflict is also really rich for, you know, character discovery. And, and again, I always say, if you have character discovery, the character starts to tell you what is supposed to happen next.
1: Well, that's you know especially interesting because when you talk about emotionally connecting with readers i do feel like a lot of the emotion comes through the inner monologue or the inner dialogue so pulling us close to the character in these book club with literary appeal there's probably a lot more of internally pulling us into the character or no not
0: such well it depends i mean i think you know not every i know we talked a bit about POV, and i know we want to come back to that but like you know not everything is first person nor should it be first person I think it really depends on what the story demands. Especially if you have, sometimes multiple perspectives are better in third person. Sometimes they're better in first. It really depends. I don't have a preference for one over the other, but the story will kind of tell you. So, like for example, with like of *Records of Clover*, it wanted to be more intimate because it was about people's feelings and their hangups and issues and fears around death and so to be more kind of intimately connected and particularly this one character who was more at a remove like purposefully at a remove from everyone else we had to kind of understand her more and in order to do that we had to get into her head but I don't think that's always a necessity I have many many books that I love are also in, in third and are not in first you can you know you can be very intimate without being in first person
1: that's great to know, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. Let's talk about point of view. Do you represent all types of point of view? I guess I should say that. yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Represent Even all types.
0: even like the the first person collective. I, I have one book that was all well, we, uh, point of view, and and second person. I mean, you know, I think I
1: yes, I'm perspective agnostic. That's great. So when you're thinking about point of view and what makes a story written in the right point of view what determines the right point of view for the story I personally always find that one of the more challenging questions and when I write I love first person I love to read first person I think I just gravitate more towards first person but I also like third person limited I like being close to the characters and I really enjoy omniscient I don't think I'm talented enough to write omniscient but I think that the idea of all of these potentials you can spiral a bit. I taught writing for a while. And one of the strategies that I was teaching my students was, all right, have you tried writing this? You yeah. to kind of get a feel for it and just try it. Just like you said, just send me a few chapters in first person to Mickey. Yeah. And then it just worked out. When you are thinking about pivoting and maybe trying mm-hmm. a different point of view, what inspires you to ask that question? And how can writers start to navigate the... Difficult question of what is the best point of view for their story. Well, stories. first
0: of all, I think everyone should experiment with point of view within the particular story that you're writing. I, I very deeply believe that books have a subconscious so that is the writing you've done that doesn't actually make it into the final draft of the book. So I really recommend like doing exercises of like first person in, you know, if you're writing in third person, do a first person couple pages of a particular character, I think they speak to you differently and you can find your connectivity. And I also think too, that as you're writing and if you're playing with these different perspectives, you start to feel which feels more natural and which feels more enjoyable to write. And usually the more enjoyable way to do it is probably the right way to do it. I read, I do think that when you're having fun, You can tell the things where like it's been work for the author and somewhere it's been like, it's been a pleasure for them to try it out. so I definitely encourage experimentation until you find the right thing. But other than that, I don't feel that there are any rules. I mean, I think you can spiral out with how many options there are, but at a certain point, I think you just have to go with what the book is saying to you and what it requires from you. And that is how well it's flowing or not in a particular voice. But I do really recommend doing some first-person
1: pages just to feel your way into the character. I think that idea of when you're thinking about point of views and trying it out, when sometimes it is the right decision to switch point of views. And let's say a writer has finished a whole manuscript and now they have to do an entire POV change. That's critique alone could terrify writers into this realm of oh my gosh I don't think I can do it and they can't do it right they can't do it so how do you help them rally?
0: First off I wouldn't ask something that major of someone unless I really did believe that it was going to do the trick and that is why like for and again with this particular example of Mickey I wanted her to do a few chapters because I didn't want her to go rewrite the whole manuscript if it wasn't going to ultimately were. But I do think that, you know, if if you're doing heavy edits, which you're often doing before you get to an agent, you know, realistically, you know, you do have to remember that it is a process. Revision is where the book actually gets written. Not to say it's easy to just get a first draft out because it's not. But once the, the draft is out is when you actually know what the book is about and what it's doing. Otherwise, you know, a novel, especially you are in the forest and you have to get out through the forest before you can like go in your helicopter, look down and see the shape of it. And so sometimes you learn major things just from the course of doing that draft and in even multiple drafts. Like you should always be discovering something new about your book. Hopefully as you go, it's not something so huge that you are doing major rewrites. But I do think when that is happening, I do very much try to be a cheerleader for the author and that. The book is most important, and it's usually most important to the author as well, that they want to have a book that they're proud of, they're excited by, and is the best version of itself, you know, because you will want to keep doing more work on it before it gets out there to readers. The more you can do earlier, the better, and really be open to those big changes, especially if you're feeling stuck, because sometimes when you're feeling stuck, you need a big change. In order to get things moving again, to make it a fresh book to you because you spent a lot of time with it. And it's hard when you spend a lot of time with something to go back to it again.
1: Part of the beauty of working with an agent, especially it sounds like, you know, most fiction agents, it seems these days are editorial agents. I believe you're an editorial agent. So that means that Michelle is hands-on. So be for my accent yeah. there, so she's hands-on. She's going to work back and forth with her clients before going to market going to make sure that this manuscript is the strongest it can be before it goes to market. And when you're going back and forth, and that's part of the beauty of working with someone, you get to get out of your head. So writers, I think, you know, we spend so much time writing and in our heads. And then when you can talk to an agent who really has a professional eye for this as well, you can have these very sophisticated conversations on what might be best for the story and how it can bring it out. And that's really cool that you do that and you have that back and forth and you are working as the cheerleader, but at the same time, you're working as the coach, it seems like, right? Yes.
0: Yes, definitely. There's a lot of like coaching is actually a really great metaphor for it. And even, you know, before you, have an agent or, or reaching out to an agent. having a wonderful reader in your life, whether that's another writer or even someone who's read you trust and, and you trust to be honest with you and say challenging things to you, that's something that really is invaluable, and I think is really a necessity. I know very few writers, if any, who have not relied in some way on other writers to give them the feedback that they need, because when it's yours, it's yours. And there's a lot you can't see. And when you're sharing it with someone who is willing to give you advice and help you, it's extremely invaluable. So developing that community writers groups, you know, and being able to do that for other people, you learn too. I mean, that's, what's amazing is, you know, you learn how to edit yourself by editing others. And so having that back and forth is,
1: is really invaluable. And this goes back to what you're talking about at the beginning, your vision for Trellis and not only helping connect within the agency, with the agents, but connecting with the clients and finding you know these writers and supporting each yeah. other and I loved that you brought that up because it was about you won't be forgotten when I represent you. If you're not having yeah. a deal this you know this month, this year, you're not going to be forgotten. That's what that said to me, and I think that's huge because. Yeah. So it's very exciting to get your first deal, but you don't always know when the next deal will come and you have to find it in yourself to keep writing out of love for writing while also starting to develop this business mindset if you haven't developed it already on how publishing yeah. is a business. When you said that, is that, it's not just about the agents connecting and finding your team there. It's about supporting one another as a whole collective body of what we believe in and how we believe these stories are going to change the world or help the world. So really wonderful. I know we're ending the end of the podcast here and I do like to do a lightning three. Okay. So what we do for lightning three is I give you three questions and you try to answer them in one sentence. And if you expand, you know, all the merrier for the listeners to get to learn more and more from your amazing insights. But if you can get it in a sentence, awesome. My first question for you goes back to this idea of feedback, because as you're going back and forth, you know, it's really important, you said, to find your critique partners, to find those people you can trust and who know that you're getting feedback that is going to challenge them, but at the same time, help them make the best changes that are going to be for their book. My question is, when do you know That your book is done. There is no
0: answer. How dare you, Abigail? There is no answer for this. The book is done when you feel it is ready to be released from your hand, that you can't do anymore, that it is time to have it be out in the world, which is so not helpful (laughs) in any way. But it's when you feel like you are proud of it and you feel like you've added all you could add to it. And you may change your mind later. You might. You know, given time, might change your mind. Then say, I do have more art that. I do want to come back to it, but I do believe in releasing the book so that you can get that feedback, even if that feedback is rejection. It's really good to know if you are there or if you're not there yet, and you can glean pieces that can help you get to where you
1: need to go. That's great. I love that answer. My second question for you is going to go back to your I manuscript wish list because we've talked a lot about the emotional connection, the heart and the head but you also mentioned that you like genre blending But Yes. So i love for a second question here to be about one genres do you specifically like to see blended? And do you have any specific examples, titles that are either ones that you represent or that you just loved reading? I secretly always love horror. I'm like grew
0: up on Stephen King and so elements of horror, always great. So I have a, a novel that I worked on a few years back called The Wild Inside by Jean Bradbury. I love it. It's such a great read. And it's both a coming-of-age story and a little bit of a vampire story, as well as a literary novel. So it's just a really great book. And that, I will always have a little bit of that, like, love of horror for me. And I, but I'm also a sci-fi, elements of sci-fi, definitely have, has books like that. A great book of mine, Light from Other Stars by Erica Swyler, has elements of sci-fi, but it's also just a beautiful novel. So, so I'll give you those two.
1: I, I couldn't stick to That's them. great. So with those two, just as kind of a little bit of a follow-up, with those two, is it more a contemporary set and modern time type of thing? And then it has these sci-fi and horror elements to it. it. But the if you were to pitch it, would you say it's a blend of you know contemporary sci-fi, contemporary horror? How does that work?
0: Yeah, they're both contemporary. Well, actually, Life from Other Stars takes place in the 80s and the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, not a contemporary, but we're in between those two time periods and uh, Wild Inside is contemporary. I would say when I pitch those, I say this is a book club novel with genre elements to it. Or I would say this is a a genre novel for non-genre readers. So I think when you are reading in a genre you really know it and know a lot of the conventions and tropes, but when you are not like a deep genre reader, you might Read a book that has notes of that, but you aren't as fully educated as a reader who's like deep in that genre. So that's kind of the reader I am. And that's kind of the reader I sell for.
1: And then you have to pitch them this in like 50 words or less, don't you? Yeah, it's totally hard. <laughs> that is a challenge. Do you have any? I get
0: more words. I get as an agent you get more words. You get more words. Special treatment. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you have any strategies when you do that? Or is it does it just come flawlessly? You just trying to it's like, well,
0: what is the story? Like, right. what if what is this book really about? I am usually pretty
1: good at, at drilling down to that at some point. And I snuck another question in there, but I got to <laughs> <laughs> so final question, question number three. You have this wealth of experience. I love your vision. I am so excited for you and everyone at Trellis, and any client who gets to sign with you is super lucky. I would love for you to just speak to the listeners out there right now. If you were to say, this is the one thing, or this is maybe a couple of things that make me especially amazing at my job and how I can support you in your career, what would those things be? That is a really hard and good question.
0: So I will say one thing is I am a real editor. I, I think that is you know not uncommon, but it is really important to me to get into the vision of the book and, and make sure that our visions align and that it's, the book is the best version of itself that it can be. Another thing is I love asking publishers for more, whether that's more money or more publicity support or what have you. I think as an agent, that's one of the great pleasures of my job is that I get to advocate for the author and get when so that they don't have to. They shouldn't have to, you know, be the one asking, but I can be the one asking on their behalf. And it's great to kind of go into battle like that. I think we're all on the same team at the end of the day, editors, publishers, and writers, but I love sort of having the ability to be more demanding than the author might be themselves so that they don't have to put on that hat. They get to be the writer.
1: I love that answer. I was recently talking to an editor colleague of mine and Uh, you know, just sharing how I'd love to go into literary agenting and I do freelance work as editing. And she asked that question, like, why would you want to do agenting versus editing? And I think it's that, right? It's the advocating for the writer. You can fight for them. Yes. A little more, right? You know who you work for.
0: You know, you know who you work for when you're an agent. And when you're an editor, you kind of are drawn, like, you love your authors, but you also are paid by this large corporation that has sometimes different interests. And as an agent, you know, we sometimes there's occasions where we have a little bit of different interest than in, in the writers, but most of the time, you know, our job is very clear is like get the best
1: situation for them. Yeah. And what an amazing job you're doing at that. So, Michelle, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today in Lit Match. You have provided us with so much to go from, from point of view, wonderful insights on how you agent. You made a good wish list. I can't wait to get this episode out to listeners. Thank you, Abigail. It's been such a pleasure, and I'm so glad we were connected. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on Litmatch. You can find Michelle's manuscript wishlist, where to find her, and all the books highlighted in this episode in the show notes. If you liked listening to my conversation with Michelle and would like to hear more episodes with literary agents, please make sure to pass the show on and write a review. This helps me reach more writers who are ready to query agents or who want to learn more about the writing craft. If you have any questions or recommendations for LitMatch, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer you. I hope you'll join me for the next episode on LitMatch, and in the meantime, keep writing. I genuinely can't wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career and celebrate your book when it comes out.